Well, good morning again, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you this morning in worship of our God, who is our refuge. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 31. Right in the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms, the large numbers there refer to the chapters. We're going to be in the 31st chapter of the book of Psalms. If you're using a pew Bible, I believe you can find it on page 461. Psalm 31, a refuge in death. As has become customary, we are pausing our our normal ongoing sermon series for the summer, for for June and July. We'll be returning to to Matthew and Colossians in August and September, but but for the next two months, we'll be studying the Psalms, the, the songs of theology. And today we start this with Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Well, to to start us thinking about this psalm, I want to refer to 2009, when the legendary Chicago Bulls guard, Michael Jordan, was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. His 23-minute acceptance speech has has become famous in in a meme, tears streaming down Jordan's face. The the speech is a, a litany of everything in his career that stood in his way and how he conquered he even flew out the guy that, that beat him to the varsity team his sophomore year of high school, Leroy Smith, and laid into him during the speech. But the one thing he doesn't berate is the game of basketball. Jordan res- reserves his, his highest tribute for the end of his speech. Listen to how he closes. As I close, the game of basketball has been everything to me. My refuge, my place I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. It's been a source of intense pain and the source of most intense feelings of joy and satisfaction. Michael calls the game of basketball his refuge, the place where he would go to find comfort and peace, the source of his most intense joys and satisfactions. I wonder if that that kind of language about a game is surprising to you. Who could possibly invest so much in a bouncing orange ball going through a red ring? Well, to be honest, it's it's not just the game of basketball. We we all have a refuge. For each of us, there is a place that, that we too go to when we are confronted by grief and conflict for comfort and peace. We all look someplace for shelter from, from harm. I wonder, what would you say is your refuge? Throughout life, where have, have you gone for comfort and peace? Where have been your most intense experiences of joy and satisfaction? Well, our passage this morning, Psalm 31, is the polar opposite of Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. The the King David, who composed the 31st Psalm, was also rich and famous. His speech also contains a a litany of of those that opposed him. But instead of looking for a, a game, an idol for refuge, David looked to God alone as his refuge and shelter. Later, Jesus would take the words of this godly Psalm on his lips from the cross, 
and with the, the last strength of his failing body, shouted the words of the fifth verse, proclaiming his trust in God his Father. I pray this morning as we study this psalm, we too find our refuge in God and, and like Jesus, entrust ourselves to his hands in life and in death. So be, before we read, it's appropriate that we pause and, and make that our prayer. So would you please pray with me now for our hearing and for pro, the proclaiming of God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you in your word, that is our prayer. Lord, we seek for refuge, for protection from harm. Lord, we are powerless to protect ourselves. So Lord, this morning we pray that you would use the, the words of David inspired by your spirit to cause our hearts to find refuge in you alone or that we would be drawn to entrust ourselves to your loving hands in life and in death. Lord, we pray this in the name of our sweet Savior, Jesus. Amen. Read with me from the book of Psalms, chapter 31, beginning with the superscription. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your faith shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous, righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. And work for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. 
but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, our big idea this morning, a a one-sentence summary that, that hopefully exposes the central meaning of this chapter is this. Trust in God who is an able refuge from all threats, even death. Trust in God who is an able refuge from all threats, even death. In Psalm 31, the the righteous sufferer prays that God might deliver him from his enemies while expressing his confidence that that his fate is in God's hands, a, a confidence based on who God is and what God has done. King David wrote this psalm inspired by the Spirit, recited by Jesus to teach us to trust in God. He is an able protection and rest from all threats, not only in life, but through death. Neither our sin nor the sins of others can separate us from the love of God, our refuge. Trust in God, who is an able refuge from all threats, even death. This psalm, as I read it, has three sections, which will be our our three points this morning. First, the trap versus the fortress, that in verses 1 through 8. Their hand versus your hand in 9 through 18. And finally, alarm versus hope in 19 through 24. The trap versus the fortress, their hand versus your hand, and alarm versus hope. So let's start, brothers and sisters, in the first eight verses Our first point, the trap versus the fortress. Some psalms tell us when they were written, like the one we'll study in a few weeks, Lord willing, Psalm 34. But we we don't know exactly when Psalm 31 was written, in what circumstances. But, But we do know who wrote it. It says there in the superscription, a psalm of David. David was king of Israel, the the godly leader of God's people. We know that that both while he reigned as king and and long before he reigned as king, David suffered opposition and and threats from his family, from his enemies, from his own sin. So the first thing we have to notice about this psalm is the recurring theme of refuge. I think the key phrase of of this first section, it's there at the end of of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Read them again with me. David calls out to God at the end of verse 2, Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. David calls on God to be a rock of refuge. When you think of a rock, you think of something that's strong and stable. Refuges are, are places of shelter, protection from harm. And you'll know that, that Hebrew poetry, like the psalm, they're, they're, it's not built on rhymes, it's built on parallelism, right? Repeating the same idea in successive units. So he says much the same in the next line with different words. He asks God to be a strong fortress, strong like a rock, a fortress like a refuge. You know, we don't, we don't depend much on fortresses in our day, do we? 
A few years ago, I had the opportunity to, to visit the, the Wartburg Castle in Germany, where Martin Luther hid from Catholic authorities when they threatened his life. While there, he took on a, a false identity as, as Knight George. When you go to this castle, it, it sits on top of a, a massive hill. It's accessible by only one path, and that path is protected by a drawbridge. But it wasn't his trust. Martin Luther trusted in God to be his mar- mighty fortress. What we sang of earlier. That's something like what, what David is asking God to be to him. A, a metaphorical tall wall against all threats. By my count, there's something like eight times in this psalm that, that David calls on God to be a refuge or, or something similar. A, a fortress, a, a shelter, a, a cover. Clearly, it is David's concern. He needs protection, safety. And what does he need protection from? Well, look back at at verse 4. He says, You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. What does it mean for God to be his refuge? Well, here it it means for him to be rescued from a net. Yes, the the word literally means net, but I don't think he's, he's being tripped up in the streets by a literal net. This is poetry, and just like God isn't literally a fortress... We should take this as poetic language. We can imagine that David, what David is dealing with isn't isn't overt opposition. We read in verse 13, people talking, whispering, many, a hidden plot to take his life. We have the trap versus the fortress. Well, we have in our verses, David expressing his trust in God that despite the hidden danger... God will prove himself trustworthy. Verse 1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. And, And so, because he takes refuge in God, he makes five requests. The first one there in verse 1, let me never be put to shame. Maybe that sounds a little odd to you. Maybe his motivation is is pride, right? The reason he's asking God to protect him is because he doesn't want to be embarrassed. Don't put me to shame. Well, well no, his, his motive here, when he asks him, God to let him never be put to shame, is for God to be honored. If David is trusting in God and, and not himself as his refuge, and if God does not answer, what will that say about God, his trust? My shame as a king who trusts in you would dishonor you. Notice even his appeal there at the end of verse 1. In your righteousness, deliver me. Deliverance is not based on his, his worthiness, but your righteousness. It will be a display, therefore, of God's goodness and justice. And only David's need and inability. Th- those key phrases in verse 2 and 3 are the heart of the request. Notice He simply calls on God to be what he is. Verse 3 begins with a 4. When David asks God to be a refuge in verse 2, it is because, in verse 3, he is my rock and my fortress. Really, the rest of this section in verses 3 through 8 is David rehearsing back to God who he is and what he does. 
Not only is he rock and fortress in verse 3, but he leads and guides in verse 3. He rescues. He is a refuge. He has redeemed. In verse 7, he, he sees affliction. He, he knows his distress. He does not deliver into the hands of enemies in verse 8. And he sets his feet in a broad place. These statements are not only true, but they are, are good for us. They, they help our hearts in hearing them. This is why so many of the songs we sing are, are simply rehearsals of who God is and what he has done. Not only do these exalted truths about God bring glory to him as we proclaim who he is and what he's done, but they give us fresh courage and hope. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, like David here, repeat these truths to one another in in song to encourage and receive encouragement from one another. Well, tucked into that first section is David's statement of trust in verse 5. He says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Humans are not bodies with spirits. We are persons composed of both body and spirit. We are material and immaterial. But in particular, spirit in the Bible often refers to life. It's not just heartbeat and oxygen that gives us life, but our spirit, which is from God. So in other words, here, David in in verse 5 is entrusting his spirit to God, the immortal aspect of his being that will never die but also entrusting his his very life itself. The word there, commit, implies a a deposit, like putting your life savings into a bank. The question then is, is this a safe bank? Well, he goes on in verse 5, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. He calls God faithful. There is no other reliable place to commit our life our spirits. And it is this verse that Jesus quotes on the cross. Crucifixion was a particularly gruesome way to die. Most often the victims would die of suffocation. The the weight of the body pulling down on the suspended arms would make breathing extremely difficult. Sometimes it would take hours, sometimes as many as days. But that's why what we read earlier in Luke's gospel is remarkable. Jesus, after hanging on the cross for six hours, cried out, it says, with a loud voice. A loud cry would require a deep breath. So in the last feet of his human strength, Jesus pulled himself up to fill his lungs and cry out for all to hear of his trust in the Father. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was clearly saturated with Scripture. Three times from the cross, we have record of Jesus either quoting Scripture or fulfilling it. Psalm 22.1, Psalm 69.21. In this verse, Psalm 31, verse 5. Jesus turns to to this psalm in his last breath to express his abiding trust in God, his Father. 
Jesus, as truly human, had a, a human spirit. And when he died, he, he voluntarily gave up his spirit, which was immediately with his Father in his presence. No one took his life from him, ultimately, but he laid it down of his own accord. So our author, David, in Psalm 31, is, is as king a type of Jesus. David's suffering as king, though, though not the same as Jesus's, points to its ultimate fulfillment in the true king from heaven, Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just do what the prophets said he would do, but he also followed the, the patterns of the Old Testament, of the events, the institutions, the figures of the Old Testament, figures like David, king of Israel. So as we move forward this morning in our study of this psalm, we want to understand the words of this psalm, not only the words of, of David, but also as the words of, of Jesus, who as the true king trusted in God his Father as his refuge from all threats, even death. Jesus, like King David, was betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But Jesus suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of others as well as the sins of others against him. But through it all, he knew that God was his refuge and that he could entrust himself to God's hand. So let's turn to our our next section and our second point, their hand versus your hand. Their hand versus your hand in verses 9 through 18. In these middle verses, we don't see David refer to God as as refuge or, or shelter. That'll return once we get to the third section, verse 19. No, no, these middle verses are a description of David's turmoil, his, his suffering, and a repeated request for rescue. I think the key verses are there in verses 14 and 15. The hinge, when David turns from describing his suffering to now expressing his trust in God and his care. Read those two verses with me again. David says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Again, David is expressing his trust in God. No matter what else, he is his God. Notice the personal pronoun. You are my God, present tense. And he recognizes in verse 15 that his times, David's times, are in his hand, even when he is in the hands of his enemies. Despite all of the hardship, he knows this isn't random happenstance. This isn't something outside of God's control. Do you know that? That suffering, either because of your sin or the sins of others, is in God's hands? Look with me at what David suffered. Starting in verses 9 and 10, he he describes what he suffers because of his sin. He uses language of, of eye, soul, bones, and body wasted from grief. Life spent from sorrow. Years spent from sighing. Strength, in verse 10, failing And the cause there behind the because of verse 10, because 
of my iniquity. Because of my iniquity. Iniquity is a word that means wickedness or, or perverseness. David is weak, wasted, and in woe because of his sin. I think we should take verses 9 and 10 both as his own grief over his sin, godly remorse, hating the evil of sin, but also the, the just consequences of his sin. If you come back next week, Lord willing, we'll think about this more in, in Psalm 32 when, when David, David speaks more about his suffering because of his sin. David, as, as righteous as he was, was a sinner. And I, I just want to take a moment to note something here, especially in light of the, the Southern Baptist Convention's Sexual Abuse Task Force report. If you haven't heard, an independent investigation called on for by the, the members of the, the convention reported that the executive leadership of the SBC has, has largely been guilty of ignoring and, in effect, mishandling sexual abuse in the denomination for decades. We can say without qualification what they did was sin. It is contrary to God's law to, to love. And we should not be surprised that leaders sin. David here is an example of that. But what we should be surprised by and outraged over is when leaders hide and continue their sin. David here admits that he is a sinner but he is also a model of deep and transparent repentance. He has no love for his sin and, and no desire to hide it in order to maintain his reputation. Our prayer is that God would give us more leaders like, like David who hates his sin more than he loves his reputation. And because David was a sinner with all mankind, he suffered under the curse of sin, receiving in himself the due penalty of his error. You know, not all physical suffering is directly corresponding to a specific sin, but, but all suffering is the result of sin. You know, God created a world without sin and therefore without suffering. All pain therefore exists as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion because we are sinful. I think the weight of David's suffering here is because of his grief of repentance. You know, a synonym for sorrow, the word he uses there, is, is remorse. The life of a genuine believer, of a genuine Christian, is one of perpetual sorrow for ongoing sin. Jesus taught, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Brothers and sisters, part of growth in Christian maturity is cultivating godly grief for your sin. Not just for specific sins, but for the fact that you are a sinner. You know, what it means to be godly is to feel and to think like God, godly. And God is grieved by our sin. They offend him because he is holy and good. We know this naturally. When you know something you do offends others that you love, well, the appropriate response is sorrow. 
We think someone who isn't sorry for offending those that they love doesn't act, don't actually love them. Friends, the heights of Christian joy are only known by those who know the depths of Christian sorrow, the depths of godly grief that David expresses here. The Psalms are filled with expressions of joy because they are also filled with expressions of godly grief. You know, Jesus, of course, never sinned. When Jesus takes up the words of this psalm on the cross, he cannot mean them in the same way that that David does. The grief of Jesus in the garden as he anticipated the cross, the, the suffering of the cross was because our sins were laid on him. Though Jesus never sinned, he became sin for us. His body was wasted. Life spent from sorrow very literally, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all who would repent and trust in Jesus. He himself, Peter writes, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And because he bore our sins, the, the punishment that our sins deserve has been, have been exhausted. Because he has exhausted our sins penalty, when Christians suffer, it is never as punishment for our sins. Jesus has already suffered that for us. So I think what, what David is suffering here in verses 9 and 10, as, as one who takes refuge in God alone, is not punishment for his sin. No, it is the gentle compassion of God to awaken him to sin's wickedness. If we never suffered because of sin, I don't think we would ever know how evil it is. God uses this suffering to cleave him and us from the love of sin, to teach him and us the beauty of God's faithful deliverance. It is God's loving discipline. All those whom he loves experience suffering like this. So Christian, whatever you are suffering, it is not meaningless. God has gentle and compassionate reasons in it. But we have to notice that his own sin is not the only reason that David is suffering. If verses 9 and 10 describe the turmoil due to to his sin, verses 11 through 13 describe his suffering because of others' sins against him. Look again at the the transition in in verse 11. Here the cause, he says, is my adversaries, his opponents, who there cause him to be despised and abandoned by all, even his neighbors, his acquaintances. Maybe they're spreading false reports about David. We don't know exactly what they're doing. Whatever the case in verse 13, they are plotting for his life. He says there is danger on every side. Wherever he looks, there is terror. So the only place for him to look is up. You know, maybe you're not hearing the, the whispers of, of those who are plotting to take your life, but, uh, but I'm sure that you can resonate with David here. You are suffering because of others' sins against you. Their malice, their, their envy, even hatred. So I want you to notice here, who is David speaking to 
about His suffering. Not those who oppose Him, but to God Himself. The first and most important place for you to seek comfort is God Himself. And to do so, as David does here, by speaking to Him about your suffering in great detail. Not because He doesn't know. He he knows what we need before we even ask. But because He gets the glory when we express our trust in Him even in our greatest need. Look how glorious God is shown to be in, in David's next words. Despite how dangerous his circumstances are, those plotting to take his life, verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. He recognizes that that even these times of, of suffering, sorrow for his sin, and the plot of murderers against him, this is in, he says, your hand, verse 15. His times are in the hands of a, of a loving and omnipotent father. Church, take comfort. Whatever comes tomorrow, it is all guided by the hands of a loving and omnipotent father. We, of course, have to look to Christ who suffered from murderous opposition on every side. Even his closest acquaintances abandoned him in his darkest hour. Not only Judas, but but all the twelve, even the closest three. But despite being abandoned, he too could say, but I trusted in you, O Lord. I said you are my God. From the first to the last hour of his crucifixion, he knew that this hour was in the hands of his loving and omnipotent Father. If it had been possible, the cup would have passed from him. This kind of trust of of verse 14, of rest in God's hand, leads us to how David prays next. Since he, he knows the love and power of God's hand, he asks for God to rescue him. In verse 15. All the way through verse 18, we see more of David's requests to God. First, in 16, to make his face shine is a way of asking God to to bless him. He goes on to ask God to to save him in his never-changing love. Again, his rescue is not because of his worthiness, but because of God's righteousness and steadfast love. In verses 17 and 18, David prays that God will deal with his enemies. He he talks about them going silently to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew place of death. So in short, he is asking for God to foil their plans against him, that the wicked, the proud, the liars instead would die. These verses are are helpful for us in in understanding something that I I skipped earlier. In in verse 6, David says that he hates those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. He hates those who pay regard to worthless idols. That feels like strong language, doesn't it? Hate. I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. Yes, we are. We love them by extending them grace, grace in the gospel. We love our enemies by showing them dignity, all dignity that all people deserve as made in the image of God. And we leave them 
or we love them by leaving vengeance to God. Notice here in verses 17 and 18, David, who is king, who is the very arbiter of justice in Israel, asks God to ask, act here. He does not take vengeance into his own hands. No, he says, I call upon you, let the wicked be put to shame. He then is a model for us to pray for God to do justice. It is not for us as individuals. Loving our enemies means leaving it to the wrath of God. And instead, as Paul says in Romans 12.20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, for by doing so you will reap burning, heap burning coals on his head. God will punish wrongdoers, not David and not you. And of course, this is exactly how Jesus lived as well. 1 Peter 2.23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus trusted God as his refuge and, and to execute justice on his behalf. His part was to love his enemies. But, of course, love does not mean endorsing sin. Don't be fooled by the message of our culture, brothers and sisters, to, that to love someone means to accept their lifestyle. No, it's, it's cruel to pretend that a behavior that merits God's wrath is okay. As our culture around us celebrates Pride Month, the godly lament. It is designed to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Love for God means a love for righteousness, which will always bring about a corresponding hatred for wickedness, sorrow for sin. We need God's grace to see things as God sees them. And when our enemies are in our hands, to show them love and entrust them to, to a just God. The trap versus the fortress, their hand versus your hand. Third and finally, alarm versus hope. Alarm versus hope in verses 19 through 24. Back in 19, David returns to language describing God as refuge. He, he talks about God as, as refuge there in verse 19 and, and cover and shelter in verse 20. I think the, the key verse of this section is verse 23. Read it again with me. David calls on us, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Here at the end, after calling on God to be a refuge, after pouring out his, his pain to God and, and calling on Him to act, our song calls all people, therefore, to love the Lord. Why? What does it say there? Because as refuge, He preserves the faithful. And as just judge, He Himself repays the proud. Notice, saints, how David turns to praise here at the end of the psalm. 
In, in verse 19, he talks about the abundance of God's goodness, the acts of his love towards those who hide in him. And in verse 20, that God's cover comes where? In your presence. It is by being with God that we have refuge. He doesn't provide refuge apart from himself. No, he himself is our refuge. David's praise moves from speaking about them in verses 19 and 20 to me, himself personally, in verse 21. He says in verse 22 that that he had been alarmed, frightened when surrounded. And what does he say in his alarm? Verse 22, I am cut off from your sight. But that's not true, is it? God saw and heard. You know, I think all of our hearts are prone to say untrue things about God in our alarm. When you get bad news... When suffering continues, what is your heart prone to say to yourself? You know, you listen to no one else in the world more than yourself. What is your heart saying to you hour after hour about God? Is it saying true things about God? I think we need to observe here that David cites what his heart had said and corrects it. Brothers and sisters, how can we, how can we say true things to our own souls, hopeful things? I might suggest listening this morning to the words of others. As we sing, as we pray, as you hear God's word read and preached, to give you new words to meditate on, to speak to yourself this week. Take David's words in Psalm 31, verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. If you need something to do this week, I think those words are worth memorizing and recalling day in and day out. Speak these to your soul. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. And what is the greatest display of his steadfast love to us, church? In this way, God has loved the world. That he gave his only son. That if we believe in him, hating sin for what it is, we will have life. You will be saved. You know, basketball is a very foolish refuge. It, it, its hands have no power and no love. It gives no lasting rest. All other refuges are impotent. But this refuge is one of power and love. He is an able refuge. And so, what do we do? But in verse 24, wait. Wait, saints. And in our waiting, be strong and let our hearts take courage. You know, strength and courage are only necessary when danger and threats continue. Psalm 31 is not about an end to threats, but a refuge from them in God. 
So I ask, brothers and sisters, what threatens you? Today, what do you fear? And where will you go to find refuge, a place of comfort and safety? Where do you look for for joy and satisfaction? Whether you've never trusted in God before, or if this is a well-worn path in your heart this morning, hope in God. When your heart recoils in fear, hope in God. You know, in the Bible, hope is about confidence about what will happen paired with ignorance about when it will happen. In Christ, we have absolute confidence that we will be rescued from every danger. David's confidence here is a shadow of of Jesus' perfect trust in God. And was his trust vindicated? Yes, His trust was gloriously vindicated when he was raised from the dead in victory over not only death, but all his enemies. And his victory will be ours as we share in his trust. We don't know when, but it is certain. And so we wait. Not even death can separate us from the love of God, our refuge. Brothers and sisters, trust in God who is an able refuge from all threats, even death. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the words of Psalm 31. Lord, we trust in you, O Lord. We say you are our God. Lord, our times we trust into your hands. Our very spirits we commit to you, that you would keep us from every danger, even death. Lord, we can claim this confidence only because of Jesus, who for us and for our sake became man. Lord, he suffered the opposition of his enemies and even his acquaintances, that he might taste death for everyone, that we might be delivered from death. Lord, by our belief in him, your gift to us We have confidence and we wait in hope that one day we will be delivered through death into everlasting hope with you. It's in this confidence that we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.